0: Hello and welcome to the Sound School podcast from PRX and Transom. I'm Rob Rosenthal with the backstory to great audio storytelling. Earlier this year, Stephanie Fu published an incredibly honest book about the trauma she suffered as a child from her abusive parents. The book details the complex PTSD she's lived with for many, many years. She named the book What My Bones Know, A memoir of healing with complex trauma. I read it. I got to page 12, put the book down, and I said to my wife, I'm not sure I'm up for this. The story is brutal in parts, and I was only reading it. I did finish the book, and what's not brutal, what's inspiring actually, is the story of how Stephanie steadfastly worked to overcome the disorder. I wrote her afterwards and told her by the end of the book, I pictured her as one of those Olympic weightlifters holding a zillion pounds over their head, sweating and grimacing, but also triumphant. There's a section of What My Bones Know that had me thinking, wait, where have I heard this before? And then I remembered Stephanie produced an essay for This American Life about her family when she was a reporter on the show. The essay is called The Favorite, and just like the book, it's incredibly powerful and direct. In fact, when I first heard the story, I thought, wow, she's really laying it out there.
1: I had a lot of anxiety about it, sure, definitely. And I questioned a lot if it was the right thing to do.
0: That's what Stephanie told me when I interviewed her for Sound School, which was called How Sound back in 2016. It's been a few months since her book was published, but I thought, well, why not? Let's feature this archive episode of Sound School with Stephanie to let you know about the book and because what Stephanie has to say about writing personal essays is especially insightful, even though she hadn't written very many when she was working at This American Life and before that, Snap Judgment.
1: I I, I just don't think of myself as an essayist on the radio.
0: That said, when she worked at Snap Judgment, she wrote and produced three essays, including one about her dad.
1: About me trying to burn a book? That he had gotten, which was uh, how to curb your out-of-control teenage daughter.
0: She's thinking of parenting your out-of-control teenager, but either way, she took a match to it. As for the favorite, she initially pitched the idea while she was at Snap.
1: But as I was pitching it in the story meeting, I like started breaking down in tears and just like <laughs> losing it. And so Glenn told me, you know what, maybe this is a story that you can do eventually, but you're way too close to it now and you shouldn't do it right now.
0: Why do you need distance?
1: I think that you just don't often know what your story is while you're living your story. Because you're in the middle of it. And you don't see what the real takeaway of this experience is going (laughs) to be. Basically, whenever anybody starts crying when they pitch me something, (laughs) which is um, more often than you would think. I'm always like, you know what? Wait. Write down everything. Record everything you're going through. But. Tackle this when you can get a bird's eye view of what this story really means to you in your life.
0: Time passed. Stephanie got a bird's eye view of the story. And one day she was sitting in a story meeting at This American Life talking about an episode in production called Need to Know Basis.
1: And I was like, oh, right. That whole time that my (laughs) that time that my whole family lied about uh, (laughs) why they spoiled me growing up. Um, And so I just brought it up at this pitch meeting. And Ira actually, I, d- I didn't think it would be anything. I just like blurted it out, just word vomit. But he actually glommed onto it and wanted to know more. And then when I mentioned that, you know, there was actually a tape of this moment happening, of me interviewing my great aunt about this, he uh, was like, come on, this is made to be a radio story.
0: And it is. I talked to Stephanie more about The Favorite after we listen.
1: When I was in the 7th grade, I got an assignment to write a one-page essay about my favorite place in the world. I wrote 10 pages, single-spaced, about Malaysia. I moved to America from Malaysia when I was 3 years old, but the rest of my family still lives there. We went back a lot when I was little. And so I remember crawling under ferns and hibiscus in the yard, catching moths the size of my head, playing hide-and-seek during monsoon storms. But in that essay, I didn't write about the main reason why I loved Malaysia. I loved Malaysia most because Malaysia loved me. I was the favorite child. And not even the extra serving of cake kind of favorite. The kind of favorite where everyone would straight up say at family gatherings, oh, Stephanie's the best. My aunts would tell their children, why can't you be more like her? Then they'd buy me all the toys I wanted. And the person leading this campaign was the matriarch of our family, my dad's aunt. We all called her auntie. Every time I walked into a room, auntie would reach for me and coo, ho guai, ho guai. She's so well-behaved. She's so nice. She saved me all the best pieces of the chicken, taught me mahjong, asked only me to sit on her lap on the big papa-san as she taught me songs in Chinese. The other adults fell in line to say something nice about my eyes, my dimples, I remember I had this cousin who wanted to be an artist when she grew up. She filled up an entire bookshelf with her sketches. I showed up and started doodling and everyone flocked around me telling me I had natural talent. My cousin stormed off and didn't talk to me for days. I was proud to be auntie's favorite. Because even though she was under five feet tall, with coke bottle glasses, she was also a total badass. Auntie grew up destitute, with three sisters and a single mother in Japanese-occupied Malaysia. The girls shaved their heads to avoid being harassed by the Japanese soldiers, and they opened a gambling den, where they hustled patrons out of money and sold opium. She had an impassioned opinion about everything. When she hated something, she screwed up her face in disgust, and would actually bang her fist on the table, declaring, "Che!" Don't like Nicki Minaj. Why she got blonde white people hair when she's a black woman? Not that auntie had ever met a black woman. She didn't like traveling. She didn't like cheese. Her decisiveness sometimes didn't quite make sense. Like one time when I offered her an apple, she shook her head and said, Apple tastes just like potato, and I'd rather have potato. The things she loved seemed just as impassioned. And, just as arbitrary, the lottery, which she won over 40 times in her life, this one ditzy girl on the Korean soap operas, and me. I once asked my mom why I got the special treatment I did. She said it was simple. I was the favorite because my dad was the eldest son in the family, and I was his firstborn child. This sounded enough like something out of an Amy Tan novel for me to believe it. I left it at that. But things all started to change when I was 13. Everyone in the family heard about that one day in August when my mom told my dad and me that she was leaving us. They heard about the lawyers, the money, the house, and they heard about what a brat I was after. Which I was. I argued with my teachers, flunked out of a lot of classes. When my dad started dating, he wasn't around much, didn't even come home lots of nights. And I started fighting with him all the time. I set his copy of Parenting Your Out-of-Control Teenager on fire and almost burned the apartment down in the process. Two years after my mother left, my dad moved out completely, went to his girlfriend's place. I found a roast chicken on the kitchen counter once a week, but basically, he left me in the house on my own. I was 16 and furious. I knew my family in Malaysia got an earful about my bad behavior. I got a couple of emails from aunts telling me I needed to get it together And that cousin, who loved to draw? She wrote me to say I ought to feel bad for breaking up my parents' marriage. So I stopped emailing my family. I got up the nerve to visit Malaysia again after I graduated from high school. Not with my dad, though. I brought my boyfriend instead. And things started off normal enough. Auntie cracked jokes about my boyfriend's surprising ability to eat spicy food. She'd call him the white devil and cackle. But everyone seemed a little reserved. I wasn't the golden child anymore. I had a filthy mouth and blue hair. I picked fights about their opinions and their politics. Finally, someone asked me how my dad was. I said I didn't know. I said he was an hole. They got defensive. Auntie and the rest of my family asked me why I couldn't be a better daughter. They asked me if the stories they'd heard were true. The one about the burning books, the one about me chucking my dad's car keys into some bushes. Okay, yes, it was true. I had done all of those things. But then I realized they didn't know that my dad had moved out. They didn't know that most days it was all I could do to microwave a hot pocket for dinner. When I told them, they didn't believe it. Before they took me to the airport, Auntie grabbed hold of me and hugged me tight to her. And then she whispered in my ear, You are not a good person, okay? You need to become a better person. Then she let go and walked away. I didn't go back to Malaysia after that. Instead, I grew up. I learned how to land a job, make a paella, buy a car. I learned a few deep breathing exercises. I didn't set anything else on fire. Finally, a couple years ago, my father called me and told me that Auntie was sick. She was stable, but I should make a point to visit. So, I went back with my dad. It felt weird traveling with him, because for years we'd never spent more than a couple hours together. But when Auntie saw me, she was so excited she almost fell over. She grabbed the edge of the table next to her just in time and cried out, Wah ho lang! You're so pretty! I relaxed. All was forgiven! Auntie loved me again. She brought me food. She held my hand as we watched TV. I stayed with her a little over a week. I started recording some of my conversations with her. I wanted to remember this. Auntie told me stories from the gambling den, told me about my grandma flirting with boys for free sodas. And then she started talking about when I was a little kid. And she said this thing that, when she said it, felt like she took a box full of everything I thought I knew about my relationship with her, about my relationship with Malaysia, and dumped it out on the floor. I'll play you some of this. Take note, Auntie's English wasn't very good. She could only talk in the present tense, even when she was referring to the past, and she didn't have her dentures in at this point. But she started banging her fist on the table, and she said that the reason everyone had been kind to me when I was a kid was because they all knew that I'd suffered a lot. Here's the tape. Everybody
0: is kind to you because everyone knows that you suffer a lot. That's they're so kind to you. Wow. Because uh, they realize when you're young, you have to suffer a lot.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when she said that, something clicked. I knew what she was talking about. She was talking about my mom. When I was a kid, if I lost something or said something wrong or didn't clean a dish properly, my mother would scream, hit me. Sometimes she'd threaten to kill herself. I was never not scared growing up. That's how I remember it anyway. My mother remembers it differently. Before I go on, this is from the email she sent to our fact checker. Quote, My daughter's stories about me that she has related to you are figments of her imagination or, at best, highly prejudiced memories. If released publicly, I would consider these fabrications and distortions about me as personally very damaging. End quote. But what my auntie told me on tape was that, basically, everyone was so nice to me, not because I was the oldest child of the firstborn son, and not because my cheeks were chubby, but because they saw what my mother was doing to me. Did you see her beat me? Everybody you. I'm asking auntie if she saw my mom beat me, And she says, everyone saw. You know that scene in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, where he's in Barnes & Noble and slowly all of the lights turn off one by one, leaving him in darkness? As Auntie was talking into my tape recorder, it felt like the opposite. Like all the lights were turning on. I saw my family, saw Auntie, popping back up in those memories in a way I'd never imagined before, with them listening through walls, peering around corners. Suddenly, I remembered. This one time in my uncle's house in Malaysia. I wasn't allowed to eat dinner. Instead, my mom told me I had to cross my arms, pull on my earlobes, and do squats in front of my family, who ate their meal in silence. And then there was a time during a visit when I was six, and I disagreed with my mom about what my homework assignment was. She started beating me with a ruler. I think it was a ruler. It went on for a long time. At some point, I tried to hide under a table. As she pulled me out by the legs, I started to scream for mercy. I knew that the house was full of family. I wondered why nobody was coming to help me. I thought, they must not be able to hear me. I felt totally alone. I was not alone. Here's me and auntie again. I'm speaking in Manglish, Malaysian Pidgin English. I never thought this would be on the radio. How come you, can you never that. say anything when she beat me? But if we say anything, ah,
0: uh, who suffer? Your father. Uh.
1: She's saying, if they said anything, who would suffer? Your father would. You so about me suffer?
0: Huh? About me suffer? You,
1: you suffer? If, if you if say, I don't do that, like that, ah, uh, shoot done more. You suffer. If you say, don't do that, she'll do more. Yeah. She'll beat more. She'll beat more. Not to say it stop. You think it like that? Not to say it'll stop. You think it's like that? Meaning, your mom didn't stop when we said something. You think it's that simple? Then Auntie told me this story about how once when I was little, I woke up scared in the middle of the night and walked into her room. She woke up and whispered reassurances and ushered me back into bed as quickly and quietly as she could. She was terrified the entire time. She said she believed if my mom found out that I got up in the middle of the night, she'd hurt me. So, Auntie did not dare wake her up or tell her what happened.
0: Mm. It's unfair. Life is like that.
1: Yeah it is not fair, huh? Mm. All that fawning, those compliments, Auntie told me they were only in part for me. My family indulged me with that immense display of kindness to show my mom how I deserved to be loved. Didn't work. But I'm still grateful. Because sure, it was a lie. I wasn't the favorite. But the truth was better than the lie. For years, I thought nobody got it, that nobody was on my side. But they were. Auntie was. What do you think
0: is different about writing an essay versus a reported story?
1: To me, it's harder because I like having the frame of my tape to hold up the story. Um and to to have a structure for me that I can sort of write around. Um, I often structure, or I often pick out all of my tape before I start writing. So yeah, it's like scaffolding that you just drape things on, whereas with an essay you have to build from the ground up. But doing a radio story, I think, is always the same, in that you do want um, plot. You want plot points, for me anyway. I want, um, my. I mean... It's storytelling, and so I want the storytelling to be based on actual events that happen um, that build up suspense and then climax and, you know. And so when I was making The Favourite, I was definitely still trying to base it in uh, events and facts and things that happened to make it as much of a story as possible than just like dwelling in my feelings. Um, And so, you know, I went through a bunch of old diaries and just sat in my office staring at the wall trying to remember (laughs) events that happened in my life to support the story. And then, you know, once I had, again, sort of instead of having the tape as my scaffolding, I had those events as my scaffolding. And then I sort of draped writing around that.
0: Here's one thing I noticed you doing is you quoted people. So you said things like, uh, you said people would say, oh, Stephanie, she's the best. And then another time, I think you were quoting your, your great aunt by saying she doesn't like Nicki Minaj. Apple tastes just like potato and I'd rather have potato. So you were you were providing a kind of tape. Were you doing that on purpose because you lacked the tape
1: no i don't know if it was as conscious as that and i definitely wasn't like writing it and thinking like oh no i lack tape like i i if only i had tape so it wasn't i i didn't feel that angst i guess but there are characters in the story and auntie becomes like a full a full-fledged character later on when you can actually hear her voice But I wanted her to be somebody that you cared about and who came alive to you and who you understood a little bit as a person. So quoting her, I thought, was the best way to give a good sense of who she was. And those were some of the strongest memories I had were these funny things that she would say to me. What about
0: the risks of telling this story, uh, the risk with your family members?
1: Well, I mean, nobody in my family listens to the radio. They don't know what I do. (laughs) They have no idea what I do. So it's not really a risk. I mean, they're all in Malaysia. They don't know about public radio. So I kind of just didn't count on them hearing it. My dad... My dad heard it. But I told my dad that I was doing it ahead of time. And I actually interviewed him, you know, off the record a little bit about events, just to see what was true and what wasn't um, in my head. And... The fact checker, I mean, the story was fact checked and the fact checker did call him to verify a bunch of stuff. So he definitely knew what was happening. And I was a little bit nervous about it, but he he was like, he actually said this really amazing thing to me. He, he was like, you know, you have overcome a tremendous, tremendous amount of abuse. And I'm so proud of you for that. And for that, you... You tell what you, you tell your story. you're entitled to your own story. So he was really I, I unexpectedly amazing about it. And I was like, "Well, I'm going to tell everybody that you left when I was 16. And he was like, "Well, then you tell them that." I, I think it's actually sort of made us closer in a weird way, because he was so generous about it in a way that I hadn't experienced or expected. My aunt heard it recently, and she said it made her sad, but basically that it was true. And as for my mom, I do worry about, like, how it affected her. I mean, not that I wasn't entitled to say it, but I just hope that it didn't um, mess up her marriage and life.
0: Have you spoken to her about it?
1: I haven't talked to my mom in 15 years. The fact checker talked to her, not me. But yeah. All I know from her is what the fact checker said. Um she she sent a statement to us just calling me a liar and a crazy person basically.
0: So that that sounds risky.
1: What What do you mean risky? Yeah.
0: So he, here you are, you had this life where your where your mom abused you significantly. You stopped talking to her and you're now going to make contact with her again and the way you're making contact isn't directly it's through a fact checker but it's still contact and that feels risky to me that feels like you're you're taking a chance
1: emotionally i mean risky for my own emotional well-being <laughs> yeah i'm i'm glad that i was i took the risk of being of being vulnerable it paid off and I think it's, it is valuable to put vulnerable stories in the world. I think somebody has to do it to make sure that people don't feel alone and to normalize and validate other, other stories and make them feel true.
0: I recently caught up with Stephanie by phone. She said the favorite did not lead to her book. At the time, she saw the events in the essay as just a story, something that happened in her childhood. She told me when she wrote that, she had no idea her parents' behavior had such a traumatizing impact. And it wasn't until she was diagnosed with complex PTSD that she recognized the enormity of it all and eventually wrote What My Bones Know. The book comes out in paperback this winter. Stephanie thinks of herself as an author now, but she's still making radio. Invisibilio recently featured a story from Stephanie called Therapy Ghostbusters. It's a documentary about Cambodian immigrants living in California and their collective trauma from the Cambodian genocide. As I noted earlier, this episode comes from the Sound School archive, back when the show was called How Sound. There are some 275 How Sound episodes to dig into. You can find them at Transom, of course, or thumb through them on your podcast app and start downloading. They're all right there in the Sound School feed. This is the Sound School podcast, the backstory to great audio storytelling. I'm always grateful for Genevieve Sponsler at PRX and Jay Allison at Transom for their help with my scripts and to WCAI in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, where I record my narration. I'm Rob Rosenthal. Thanks for listening. From PRX and transom.org.